Well, there's no doubt that the doctrine of the Trinity can be a major stumbling block for a lot of people. It makes it more difficult for non-Christians to want to become Christians, and it makes the Christians who already believe it sort of uncomfortable to want to talk about it, because it's just such a deep, complex mystery. It's hard to understand, and unfortunately, throughout the history of its development, it's become sort of expressed and clouded in philosophical terminology that very few people are well steeped in or familiar with. So it's become this hard to understand doctrine that's impossible to relate to. Right? There's no analogy that works. People try to come up with analogies for the Trinity and they're all actually analogies for heresies. Analogies don't work. It can be very, very difficult. But I submit to you that the doctrine of the Trinity, when you really begin to explore it, is really quite beautiful. I believe that it magnifies God. I believe that it actually excites our faith. But more important than any of those things is that the doctrine of the Trinity must be believed because it is revealed. The Bible, in other words, is a Trinitarian book. And so whether you love the doctrine of the Trinity or you're admittedly just a little confused and frustrated by it, the Bible forces it upon you nonetheless. And my hope is that I can provide a really powerful example of just that from our passage of Scripture today. We're going to be reading from John chapter 10, verses 30 through 42. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 10, verse 30. And then when you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We begin with Jesus' final quotation in verse 30, and we will read through the end of the chapter. Thus saith the Lord, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Verse 30 plays a really interesting role in this chapter, specifically the last passages last week and today's, because it, it really sits right in the middle where it's crucial to the context that came before it, but it's also crucial to the context that comes after it. So verse 30 really served as Jesus' summary of his argument last week, which is why we included it in our sermon text. But it also becomes the controversial thing he said, the launching point that the rest of the dialogue we just read ensues from. So we sort of have to look at it both last week and this week. It really becomes a major focus 
in this passage. And verse 30 is the reason why our sermon text began with the Jewish leaders attempting to arrest Jesus and have him stoned to death. He made this claim that they consider blasphemy, namely that he and his Father are one. Jesus and God the Father are one. But one thing we didn't really get much of a chance to dive into that we get to this Sunday is what is the nature of that oneness, right? What does that even mean? How are we to understand it? In other words, you could think of the question we're trying to ask or answer in our sermon this morning is in what way are Jesus and the Father one? How are they one? What does that even mean? I want to present to you a handful of different ways that that's been understood throughout the history of the church so that we can really uh, understand how people have tried to think about this and see which one of them the scriptures support. So one way that you could potentially understand the oneness of Jesus and his father is with a view known throughout history called Sabellianism. Sabellianism, that's one option that you can take. It was labeled Sabellianism Because many of these views were oftentimes named after really influential men who not only believed them, but sort of got a lot of other people to believe them too. Leaders of these movements, right? So there's a a view known as Sabellianism, but that language and that name has sort of died out. People don't really talk about Sabellius anymore. Um, But the, the view of Sabellius still exists. It just goes by a new name, and you may have heard it as the term modalism. So I'll refer to it from here on out as modalism. But just know that modalism and Sabellianism are the same thing. So modalism, what is it then? Modalism is a Unitarian religion that claims to follow and believe in the Bible. And so this means that modalists affirm that there is only one God, but that God, like us, subsists as one person only. That's why we call them Unitarians. They are not, for example, Trinitarians, which is tri, but uni, which means one. So they don't believe that there's one God, three persons. They believe that there's one God, one person, just like you. You are one human, one person, one being, one person. They say God is just like us, one being and one person. And so because of that view, they are able to affirm that Jesus is God. They're very comfortable saying that. And so you might think like, well, it sounds like we're basically on the same page here. Uh, But unfortunately, we are not. We are not on the same page at all. Right? Because modalists are Unitarians, it it is a totally different meaning for them when they talk about the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. And here's why I say that. Because if their view is true, if Unitarianism is true, then that means that the Father, Son, and Spirit cannot be persons. Because that's three names, not one, and God is only one person. So the the, the terms Father, Son, and Spirit under modalism really become not names of persons, but titles. They become functions. They become roles, responsibilities, if you will. And so the view of modalism is that there's one unipersonal God, but He interacts with us in different ways. And when He interacts with us in those different ways, He takes on these new titles to help us understand that interaction. So sometimes He's the Father. And when he's the Father, the Son and the Spirit don't exist because there's only one person, right? And then sometimes he's the Son, and then the Father and the Spirit are gone. And then sometimes now that the Son is resurrected, now he's the Spirit. So it's just one person who sort of takes on these different roles, these different hats he puts on, so to speak. 
And they would actually, one of their favorite proof texts to affirm their view is John chapter 10, verse 30. Right? Because what does Jesus do? Jesus says, you've got this name in your head, the Father. You've got this other name, your Son. Guess what? They're the same thing. They're the same thing. I and the Father are one. The Father and the Son are the same person. So that's one potential way that you could try to read this text. But I'm going to try to make the case from the context that this is a completely inconsistent and impossible way to understand verse 30. And I get that primarily from verses 36 through 38. So let's read those again together. Beginning in verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So if modalism is true, then while God is playing the role of the Son, the Father and the Spirit don't exist. How can they? There's only one person and He's the Son, so there's no people left to be the Father. So the question I have is, after reading these three verses, who is this Father that Jesus speaks of in these verses? Do not these verses that we just read clearly depict the Father and the Son as coexisting together? There's an obvious distinction that is made between the Father and the Son. If God was the Father in eternity, then who was the Son whom He consecrated and sent into the world? Can a Father consecrate Himself and send Himself into the world? Is that what Jesus meant? I conse- Do you accuse me of blaspheming? Me who consecrated myself and sent myself into the world? No. There was a Father and a Son, and they're different, and the Father consecrated and sent the Son. They're different, and they're coexisting. And notice that. Notice Jesus' primary title in this text is not God, but Son of God. So how can He be a Son if there's no Father to give meaning to that relationship? Can the Son be His own Father? Can a Father be His own Son? And, and, and who gave the Son these works? Jesus says, you don't have to believe my words. You can believe the works that the Father gave me. So again, isn't there a distinction between the Father and Son? Why, why didn't Jesus say, believe the works that I gave myself to do? No, there's a Father, and He's a different person. And He sent me into the world, and He consecrated me, and He's giving me these works to do. There is a distinction between the two, and they coexist together. This is why we just got done confessing in the Affirmation Creed, for the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. They are not the same persons. There is a distinction of person. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. There is a unity between them, which we're going to talk about, but modalism gets that unity wrong because it obliterates the persons, but in this text we clearly have persons with distinction coexisting and interacting together. So, I and the Father are one. That really cannot be read in a modalistic way. It doesn't make sense. That's the wrong kind of unity. So we have to try something else. Well, there was another view. This one was even more popular and even more ancient, known as Arianism. Arianism, you could try. Arianism, although unfortunately it is far more blasphemous. Named after a heretic named Arius. Now, uh, Arianism as a religion 
doesn't exist today, uh, in, at least not in its ancient form, but there are many different groups of Unitarians who hold to its central core doctrine. So there are essentially modern-day Aryans living among us. The most popular example would be Jehovah's Witnesses. So one, one option we can go with this text is we can go join the Jehovah's Witness Church, say that they get John 30 right, the Aryans. Now, there are lots of other kinds of Aryans, not just Jehovah's Witnesses. They're just the most popular, to give you an example. And the, the route that they take is they just say, yeah, that modalism thing you just got done, you're totally right. right? There's obviously a distinction here. There's obviously one God, yet there's these two persons here. So we're just going to deny the deity of Christ altogether. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses do. Jesus is not God. That's their position. They argue that Jesus instead is a created being. He's not eternal. He's not God. But God created him. But he was the first creation. And he was God's favorite creation. And so because of that, God gave him all these other powers and, and made him... He's not like the rest of the other God's other creatures. He's a really, really powerful creature. So really, they obviously wouldn't use this language, but... But Arianism really basically portrays Jesus as like a super angel. Right? He's just this really powerful, supernatural being whom God created first and loved first. Now you ask, well then, how does an Arian make sense of verse 30? Because they're, they're driving a huge wedge between Jesus and the Father. And Jesus says that we are one. How could they possibly make sense of verse 30? 30. Well, the way that they understand verse 30 is that all Jesus is speaking about is what we call a unity of purpose. Jesus is addressing a unity of purpose. The Father and I are one in the sense that we both have the same goal. We're on the same team. We're both working towards the same end. We are one in purpose. Now, before we get too offended by that, it should actually be noted. That for Jesus to simply say the words, the Father and I are one, the Arians are right, that in and of itself is not enough for us to believe that Jesus and the Father share a divine essence. If you, if you just take those words out of any context and you just have Jesus in a, without context saying the Father and I are one, we, we would have no ground to jump to Jesus must be God from them. They're actually right about that. And the reason I say that is because there are lots of different ways you could understand being one with another person without assuming that we share some essence, right? So to give a couple examples, in the Bible, when two people consummate a marriage, what does the Bible say about those two people? What do they become? One. The two shall become one. Now, do you believe that your beings are subsumed, forgive me, into one another, and now you are one being, two persons? No. You, you maintain your being. You and your wife, you and your husband are still separate beings. But you are one, though. So clearly, we can't just say, Father and I are one, therefore they must be the same being. They must both be God. No, you can't say that. An even more relevant example, and this is the one that typically a Jehovah's Witness, if they come to your door and you pull this verse out, what they would typically go to is later on in John, notice what Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the disciples need to have the same oneness that Jesus and the Father have. Do the disciples become uh, whatever a Trinity word is for 12? Right? Do they become one being 12 persons? No. So the Jehovah's Witnesses are right. Just merely saying the Father and I are one is not a proof text out of its context of the deity of Christ. 
But the problem for our Aryan friends and neighbors is that the phrase, I and the Father are one, is not out of context, it's in a context. And context matters. Contexts define words. Words are defined by their context. Phrases are defined by their context. And so we, we tried to make this case last week, but I'll reiterate it. The way Jesus uses this phrase in this text very clearly is asserting a deity. Because Jesus is not just claiming to have the same purpose as the Father. He is claiming that. We share the same will. But he also claimed to have the same power. Do you remember what came right before verse 30? The, the, the sheep are in my hand and they are in the Father's hand. No one will pluck them out of my hand. No one will pluck them out of the Father's hand. So what was Jesus saying last week? He was saying the Father and I have the same power. And remember what we said last week. Is it possible for a finite being to have infinite power? No, that's impossible. So if Jesus says the Father and I have the same power, it follows necessarily that they have the same essence. Additionally, even if Jesus says the Father and I, he doesn't say that our, our wills are the same. He says they're one. Jesus has the same will as God. And how big is God's will? It's infinite because he is infinite. So Jesus has an infinite will and an infinite power, which makes him an infinite person. And there's only one infinite being in the whole universe, and it's God. Jesus, in this context, is claiming to be God. Out of context, maybe not necessarily, but in this context it is. And if you say, ah, I don't know if you've convinced me. You know what I think is the most powerful argument? That's how the Jews understood it. Verses 30 through 33. I and the Father are one. And the Jews said, oh, no big deal. They're just one in purpose. We're fine with that. No. I and the Father are one. So what happened? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. The Jews heard verse 30 loud and clear. They heard it in its context, and they understood very, very clearly what Jesus was saying. And it becomes the very basis of their charge against him. Why is Jesus a blasphemer? Because he just told us he's the one true God. And so it's unfortunate that our Aryan friends are even harder of heart than Jewish's most wicked opponents. Forgive me, Jesus's most wicked Jewish opponents. Even, though, even the very men who had him killed were able to understand him better than modern day Jehovah's Witnesses are. They heard Jesus loud and clear. In its context... I and the Father are one, cannot be interpreted as they are totally separate beings who have the same goals in mind. No, there is a shared essence happening here. Jesus is claiming to be God. So we can throw Arianism into the same trash bin that we just threw modalism. But then someone else can come along and say, listen, we're, we're with you, man. I and the Father are one. Jesus is clearly claiming to be God. The Jews heard it. We heard it. We think Jesus is God. But why are you limiting yourself to one? And this is a view known as polytheism. Jesus is God, but there are lots of gods. So poly, poly means multiple theism, multiple gods. We are monotheists, mono meaning one, one God. Polytheists say, yeah, Jesus is God, and the Father is also God, but they're different beings. There are lots of gods. 
Polytheists, most polytheists are totally unrelated to Christianity. You know, it's like Hindus and Buddhists and stuff like that. But there are people who try to read the Bible and be polytheists. They're known today as Mormons. Mormons are polytheists. They believe that there are multiple gods. They believe the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all three separate beings. Not just three separate persons, three separate beings. There are three gods that regulate our world. And that's that's how they make sense of verse 30. Jesus is trying to say, I am a God just like the Father. The Father and I are both God in that we both are a God. And now you might say, that's just not what verse 30 is saying. And I'm with you on that, but you know what they'll do? They're quick to go to the context because Jesus says some weird stuff in here. 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If you called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you save him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Doesn't Jesus affirm polytheism here? He's just one of the many gods, right? Now, what on earth is going on here? If Jesus is claiming that he's just one God among many gods, then one thing that we could definitely agree with the Jews on is that Jesus is out of harmony with the Old Testament. That would be a a natural conclusion. The Old Testament is, is bad, which is why the earliest Christian polytheists that existed went this very direction. The Manichaeans. The Manichaeans believed that there were multiple gods, and but the Old Testament is pretty clear that there's only one, and so the Manichaeans said the Old Testament is bad. The Old Testament was written by one of the evil gods, and the New Testament is written by Jesus, one of the good gods. So at least the Manichaeans were willing to admit that if we're going to make Jesus just another god among the gods, we have to do without the Old Testament. I, I could literally spend hours showing you the Old Testament's constant repetitive teaching of monotheism. But I think just a couple examples hopefully will suffice. So here's one of my favorite, a passage from Isaiah 44, which by the way, in the context, is Yahweh trying to prove to pagan uh, priests and philosophers that their gods don't exist. And here's one of the things he says. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Pretty clear, right? But we obviously, we, we couldn't go through an Old Testament study of monotheism not bring up what was for the Jews the most important verse ever. The earliest creed that God ever gave to his people is a creed known as the Shema, because the first word in Hebrew starts with Shema. And this is a creed that the Jews had to recite constantly. As a matter of fact, even to this day, Orthodox Jews are required to recite this creed every morning that they wake up. And it's Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jews have always understood this to be not just a oneness of his essence, but that he alone exists. There is one God. So because Jesus is a monotheistic Jew, perhaps it would be helpful, beneficial for us 
to read what exactly he's quoting from so that we can understand this bizarre passage in John 10 about how the scripture says you are God's. So let's do that together. Turn in your Bibles to where Jesus quotes from, which is Psalm 82. Keep your markers in John 10, but Psalm 82. It's a short psalm, so we're going to just read the whole thing together. Psalm 82 is a psalm of Asaph, and it begins this way. God has taken place, his place, in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So this is the text Jesus cites from when he reminds the Jews. By the way, even in your Bibles, God calls other people gods. I said, you are gods. Here's where he's citing from. But unfortunately for our Mormon friends... Uh, this text has been commented on for over 2,000, well, 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, and their interpretation has never once come up. Uh, nobody, no Jewish theologian, no Christian theologian, has ever tried to go the road of the Mormons. So what roads have people gone down? There is a very popular view today, it's not ancient very much, but a very popular view today, which is that the gods of this text are angels. That's why your Bible makes it lowercase. Angels are gods in the sense that they are supernatural, right? Angels are not human beings, and they're not limited. They don't have the same limitations that we do. They are supernatural, and so in that sense, it makes them like little mini gods. And so the idea is that there's this council of angels that God sits among, and he is getting angry at these angels for not judging the world rightly, not running the world on his behalf rightly. And so that's why he curses them and says, now you're going to die like men. Angels aren't supposed to die, but now you're going to die like men. And I would say, if I'm being honest, if all I had was Psalm 82, I think this makes a lot of sense. But I'm going to recommend the reason why almost no one throughout the history of the church has read read it this way is because of how Jesus applies it. So let's go back to John chapter 10 and notice Jesus gives us a little hint at who this text was about. And what does Jesus say in verse 35? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. So this is one of the reasons why um, the angelic interpretation has fallen away. Because Jesus describes whoever this group is, it's a group that received the word of God. And when you read the Old Testament, that is never something attributed to angels. Angels are never attributed as those who have received God's word. But there is two different groups of people that that is spoken of often. One is the nation of Israel as a whole, and the other are Israel's leaders. So those are the two primary interpretations. Either the gods here are all the people of Israel or Israel's leaders. 
But when you look at Psalm 82, how it's very clearly a judgment on leaders, authorities, for not giving justice to the weak and the poor and stuff. I think the best interpretation is that the gods of this text are Jewish leaders. In other words, Jesus is talking to people the Bible calls gods. He's talking about them. They are the gods. And you might say, why would the Bible do that? Like, why would the Bible make, call, like, people, little, lowercase g, gods? Well, it's kind of simple and obvious because people have the ability to receive a commission from God to sort of represent him on earth. They can sort of take his authority and then they wield that authority over the people of God. And so in that sense, metaphorically speaking, they become God. If you think, no way, I would never call like my pastor God. I would never call my husband God. I would never do that. That's fine, but the Bible does do that. So for example, in in Exodus chapter 7, and the Lord said to Moses, or forgive me, for, uh, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now here's what's interesting. The ESV, all the modern interpretations, they, in, they, they translate this in such a way as to not stump you. So that word, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, That word like is not in the Hebrew. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. It happens all the time in translations. We oftentimes have to add words that are not in the text because it just doesn't make sense from language to language. So this isn't like some scary, nefarious thing, okay? It happens all the time. But if you were to read this verse, say, in the King James or the New King James or or a more literal translation, it would read, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Moses was Pharaoh's God. But we know that, is he saying that I have changed you from a human being into another God? No. Moses just takes on that divine authority and he acts like God over him. So the scriptures are comfortable taking creatures, whether it's angels or, or, or church leaders, who have been given a special divine authority and called them small case, lower G gods. But it's not making a reference to their essence or their nature. Submitting that there actually is another being like Yahweh. So Jesus is not in any way, shape, or form in John chapter 10 claiming that there are other gods out there and he's just one of them. But, so what Jesus is doing, now we can sort of narrow it down, is admittedly kind of, kind of difficult, but I would say there's really two options and they're very related. Either Jesus is essentially just sort of saying something like this. Uh, he's, he's basically just saying, he's trying to make them give an account for their blasphemy charge, right? So Jesus says, Basically, verse 30, he essentially says, I am God. And so they say, blasphemy, kill him. And he's trying to go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's think this through a little bit. You're trying to kill me just simply because I said I'm God? Well, what's the problem? Your own Bible calls people gods. And you don't try to kill them. No one tried to kill Moses when he took on the responsibility of being God to Pharaoh. Nobody tried to kill the Jewish leaders in Psalm 82 when God called them gods. So Jesus is simply, one view is he's trying to get them to realize how baseless their accusation is. I said I'm God and you're going to kill me? Lots of people have said that and you have no problem with it. So why are you so bothered when it's me? He's just trying to get them to see how illogical they're being, which would make sense as to why he would appoint to his works. Essentially saying, listen, if you want to stone me to death for blasphemy, you're going to need a whole lot more than I just called myself God. You're going to need way more than that. And his point is, when you look at my works, it should vindicate we have no problem here. Because not only 
did I call myself God, which in and of itself isn't a problem. But I also backed up that claim with miraculous works that the Father gave me. And that word works, by the way, wouldn't even just include miracles. Jesus is saying my whole life is the proof and vindication of what I mean by my claims and that they're true. No one else can do the things that I can do. No one else has loved people the way that I have loved people. I have a grace and a power that can be found nowhere else than in God. So my claim is not offensive and it's vindicated. So if you're going to stone me for blasphemy, you need more than just a claim. That's one option. That's the one I think he's probably doing. It's also possible that he's just simply saying, I am the son of God. So if anybody deserves to be called God, isn't it me? If, if Moses was allowed to be called God and Moses was just a human being, then should the Son of God certainly be allowed to be called God? So that's another option. But no matter which of those two interpretations you take, when you, when you read Jesus in context, when you take it from Psalm 82, it's very clear he is not presenting polytheism to us. He is making a point about how even things that are not God can be called God, so you need more evidence than just he called himself God. Jesus is just refuting their charge is really all that it is. And so at the end analysis... Polytheism fails, Arianism fails, Sabellianism fails. So that really leaves us with only one coherent theology to draw from this text, and that is Trinitarianism. That there are multiple persons who subsist in the one being of God. That God is one being with one essence, but that that essence is shared by three co-equal, co-existing persons. We confess this in the Athanasian Creed when we said for the Father, or forgive me, we confess this when we said that they are all equal, they are all eternal. Each one is eternal, each one is Lord, each one is God. But we said the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. There are three persons who all share the same divine essence. And so that's why in layman's term, you've also oftentimes heard the Trinity described as one being, three persons, one essence, three persons. That's why in our creed, again, what the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. You just confess that. What they are is the same. They all share, undivided, the one divine essence. There is one God. There is one divine essence shared co-equally in three persons. And I think, by the way, Jesus says as much in this text, not just in verse 30. Notice verse 38. What a powerful verse, verse 38. Jesus says this, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is more context that helps us understand verse 30. This doesn't work with Sabellianism. It doesn't work with Arianism. It doesn't work with polytheism. Jesus is saying that we are in each other. If you ever want to go to a party and impress your friends, the Greek term for this is perichoresis, which means in Greek it means rotation. And the Greek theologians use this to describe how because all three persons share the same divine essence, that means that all three persons are in each other because it's the same thing. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Where one of the persons is, all the persons are there. Where one goes, the other goes well. They are in each other, perichoresis. The Latins took this and called it circumcision. But you can just say they are in each other. Again, there is one divine essence and that that which is God is shared among these members completely. So it's not like one-third God, one-third God, one-third God. 
the fullness of the essence is communicated to every person so that the Father is in the Son. Not part of the Father, not a little bit of the Father. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Which is different than saying the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father. That's not the same thing. They're saying we're different, but we're in each other. One God, three persons. That's our God. That's who Jesus teaches you. Right? Or perhaps it's better to say that Jesus is teaching the basics of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit hasn't been brought up yet. He's going to be. We're going to read about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 17. So he's going to bring the Holy Spirit into this. So admittedly, this isn't the full doctrine of the Trinity because we only have two persons in this text. But Jesus is laying these basic Trinitarian foundations for these people. Namely, he's trying to teach them that while, yes, he is a separate person from the Father, he is a separate person from God, he is nonetheless one with God. God is in him and he is in God. They share a divine essence. So he's not claiming to be the Father, but he is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be a person of the Godhead. He is the Son of God, the one who has received the full divine essence from his Father eternally. And this is why his enemies seek to arrest him. They understand there's something, from their perspective, blasphemous going on here. That's why he has to retreat to where his ministry first began. Let's finish 39 through 42. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true many believed in him there. I know the Trinity is hard to understand and that in turn makes it hard to believe. I understand that. But everything about Jesus is hard to believe. He is so great, so majestic, so loving. It's hard to believe. Even John's own disciples struggled to believe everything that Jesus taught him. The stuff that John was saying about Jesus was so magnificent. They said, we're not going to believe this guy unless he shows us some miracles. And he never did. That's how lofty John's view of Christ was. You wouldn't believe me unless you saw a miracle. But thankfully for these people, John didn't need to back it up with miracles because Jesus backed it up for him. And they realized after their encounter with Jesus that everything, his teachings, his love, his miracles, they realized that John was right about everything. 